Joe Namath, one of the most recognized quarterbacks to ever play the game. You're the biggest thing to hit New York since Babe Ruth. It was a different lifestyle, certainly. Totally different. For most of his 13-year career, Broadway Joe led the New York Jets, winning Rookie of the Year and eventually a Super Bowl. Oh, it was like, holy cow, we're here. Known for his charm and good looks, Namath was the first player to become a true media superstar, rubbing elbows with Hollywood royalty. How about Elvis Presley? Boy, one of the highlights in my life. And turning heads of women everywhere. But I was a healthy young man that uh, appreciated the company of the opposite sex. But his lavish lifestyle eventually took its toll, and once he started a family, something had to change. There was a time that it just became a habit. Namath shares how college football coach Bear Bryant shaped him as a player. You turned your back on Coach Bryant at practice. He said, boy, when I talk to you, you look me in the eye and say, sir. I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Explains the most memorable moment of his career and how his Super Bowl win helped change the face of the league. We weren't accepted by the fans of football until we won. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. The first question would simply be, what about the 18-game regular season? I'm a fan. You I are. want that. I want the 18-game regular season. You're looking at a guy that once played for the Jets, and we had seven preseason games. Seven. And let me give you a good one, Graham. I was a rookie. We were playing the Houston Oilers in Alexandria, Virginia in a preseason game. My coach is Hall of Fame coach Weeb Eubank. He had coached the Baltimore Colts, now he's the Jets coach. Well, I'm standing next to Coach Eubank on the sideline while we're playing this preseason game against the Oilers. Our receiver, Don Maynard, who is a Hall of Fame guy, you know, he went on to be, I mean, he was sensational. Don just missed the pass out there, went off his fingers a little bit. And Weeb standing on the sidelines, Don didn't give the effort. Don, that wasn't effort. Bake, get in there for Don. So Bake Turner's going in. Don Maynard's jogging off the field. And we've standing and said, Don, that's a bunch of stuff. That wasn't 100% effort. And Don just jogging by saying, shoot, coach. What you want for $50 a game? We were getting paid $50 a game for those six preseason games. You think things haven't changed over the years. <laughs> right. So yeah, football wasn't a year-round activity for a lot of us. More of my teammates, they had to work in the off-season. Many of my teammates worked during the season. Downtown, wherever they'd work as insurance men or Wall Street, because our coach, Weeb Eubank, believed in having practice close to game time. So we didn't have to assemble at the stadium until noon each day. My buddies were down there working. I mean, they were, they were working. So the game's better today, too, for that aspect. Again, these players are honing their skills on a year-round basis. They're getting subsidized for them to be able to live for a year off of their salaries as opposed to the game of yesteryear. What do you make of the NFL enforcing the existing rules concerning hits? I love it. You love it? Oh, absolutely. I thought absolutely. you might hate it considering how much you got beat up when you no, played No, I tell you. I work with children, too. We use football to teach children about life, how to accept responsibilities because the other boy's counting on you or whatever, but use that sport to teach them about life. And I see youngsters getting hit. I see them fall down. I see licks, uh, them hit their head at times. 
And when I look at the college and, and professional, especially professional licks that are put on these players, I know that they're not all necessary. I know they're not all necessary. And we've seen a pullback in the NFL from the spearing, from the guys launching into helpless players that are just there and getting hit. Players can change, you know. They can change their techniques. They don't want to. Sure, just because they've been doing it that way their whole lives doesn't mean they can't change and they need to change. We need to keep this game as safe as we can, even though, once again, these bodies weren't designed for it, man, and it's always going to be a hard game. After practice, you would often spend two to three hours brainstorming with coaches or studying film. How did you find that most benefited you? When I was a sophomore in college getting ready to start my first college game, we were playing Georgia. Coach Bryant took myself and the other four quarterbacks out for a walk around the block like we did after the pregame meal each time. Now, I'm the youngest quarterback there, right? But I was starting as a sophomore. So we're starting to walk along and Coach Bryant said, Joe, you got the plan? I said, yes, sir, I think so. He said, you what? You think so? Son, it's time to know. The hay's in the barn. Don't give me this think so. I said, I know. I, I, yes, sir, I know. That was the only time I ever said I think so because after that I made sure I knew what we were doing. I convinced myself I'd be ready for what that defense did and how to put our offense against it. And uh, I got prepared because it was an awful feeling answering that question, you know, yes, sir, I think so. I think so. There's no room for I think so business. You either know or you don't. And uh, I learned uh, just in that little walk to make sure I convinced myself, yes, sir, I know. I was talking to somebody else close to you who said they could be watching an Alabama football game with you today and you could tell them what the Alabama defense is going to do before the play ever even happens. So why do you think you're able to read defenses so well? Well, most of the guys that's played the game can tell in a pre-snap look or so what to expect. You might not always tell what they're going to do, but you can tell from a look what they can't do. Don Maynard told me what he most respected about your game was appropriately your ability to anticipate where the receiver was going to be and always have the ball there. What do you think enabled you to do that so well? Coaching, learning it, emphasizing it in practice. Uh, yeah, that, that's important in today's game. Uh, as good as they are, there are a lot of late passes thrown. You see, receivers open three, four, five steps waiting on the ball. Uh, More so than when you, you play. You know what it is, Graham? In practice, the quarterback can go full speed. But it's hard for the receivers to go full speed week in and week out at practice. It's hard for the running backs to really go full speed. With the adrenaline not going through your system, the urgency not there. They're running at a tempo that is like full speed, but without any urgency or tempo, they're not as fast as they are in the game. I, I watch the game and I see so many balls thrown by quarterbacks that are underthrown not intentionally, but are underthrown, that I figured that that's what it is. When they work and they practice and practice, they're not practicing at the same speed they're playing at in the game. And so that ball, that same throw you make in practice might be right there. But in a game, 
with the energy, the urgency, the adrenaline, that receiver's up there and the ball's behind him by that time. Somehow, those receivers gain a step or so in speed when they get into the live action as opposed to practice. Which then makes it problematic for the quarterbacks since they were unable to practice at that speed. Well, that's right. But on the other hand, you have guys like Manning and Brady that seem never, you know. Sure, right. Hey, if I'd have recognized that whenever I was playing, uh, we would have uh, tried to do more with the timing of getting the ball out there in front. But again, you can't add, your receivers have taken a beating. They've been running every day, you see, and you can't get them to run full speed in practice. Might have a sprained ankle, a partial pulling the hamstring or something. So you're lucky if you can practice full speed in professional football. I read uh, in an article something you said, which I found interesting. You said, quote, it was strange coming out of high school and having colleges offer me as much money as my father made in the year. What types of offers did you receive? $6,000 a month at one point from a college and a new car every year. Really? Yeah. My brother Frank, when I shared it with him, he just looked me in the eye and he said, hey, you gonna go to work with some cheaters? You're going to school? You're gonna go play ball with cheaters? You know, he put it that way. <laughs> and my dad was making 5,100 at the mill, you know. I mean, the steel mills, it was good work, but it just wasn't that kind of money. But that, uh, it was family input again. My brother Frank uh, brought that business up about going to be a cheater. I guess if they didn't want the money that bad, then I, I didn't need it, you see. Uh, so that was the most important thing, that conversation I had with my brother Frank. Who made you the offer? I, I wouldn't say that. But it was more than one school. How common was that then? I don't know. I didn't talk to everybody. You know, I don't know who all went through that. I found it unique because it was a total surprise to me. You know, when the man took me outside of my house on 4th Avenue in Beaver Falls to come sit in the car with him. And that's whenever he told me about the money in the car. Uh, that's the first time I ever heard of it. Yeah, I, it was like, really? <laughs> Gosh, you know? And uh, after that, it, I guess it still goes on today to some extent. You have uh, various folks that want their universities to have great football teams and uh, they know a lot of the kids coming to school don't have a dime or don't have a dollar. How would you describe Coach Bryant? I would uh, describe him as uh, a friend, as a mentor, as uh, a man uh, that was stronger than me that I wish I could be like him in a lot of ways. Uh, he's a hard worker. And uh, he wasn't always right, but uh, he, he wouldn't mind saying when he was wrong either, you see. The way he worked, the way he demanded things out of his players, uh, it wasn't a democracy, you know. You had to do it his way. That makes it so much easier, <coughs> oh, doesn't it? man, it does. Uh, the what? I forget the name of the line. That IBF or something. Coach Bryan had a way of getting more out of the gifted guys trying to get more out of the gifted guys and appreciating the guys. When I say gifted, Coach Bryant appreciated effort, boy. He appreciated the guys that uh, weren't as gifted uh, athletically as some of the other guys, but worked hard. 
And he usually uh, got on some of the guys, myself included. Well, I don't know. I guess if you can jump on uh, one of the better players back and bring him down to earth, the other guys get the message too. Uh, he was a great teacher. The time you turned your back on Coach Bryant at practice, what happened? We were running an option right, and just uh, before I got hit, I pitched a ball, and it was a bad pitch. The voice that I'm hearing now, name it, not just your job to run the pitch. You get on the ball, whatever, and he was screaming a little bit at So I get up off the ground, and I'm walking back, and yep, yep, yep. And about that time, he had that face mask of mine in his hand, and he had me jacked up. He said, boy, when I talk to you, you look me in the eye and say, sir. I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I was on my toes, by the way. He's pulling that face mask up. My senior year, I could have been three football fields away if I heard, Joe, yes, sir. <laughs> he had a way of getting players' attention. At that time, uh, I guess I wasn't man enough to be able to look him in the eye, you know, because uh, I had fouled up, and I just didn't know about his communication techniques. The time that he ended up suspending you from the team and you missed the Sugar Bowl. Uh, what happened there? Well, I broke a training rule, and we had an off week. And that weekend of the off week, someone had told him that I was uh, downtown drunk directing traffic, which was wrong. And when Coach Bryant questioned me about this, he said, Joe, now uh, I'm going to take your word on this because I trust you. I believe you. I've got word, though, that you were downtown doing this. And I, no, sir, that's not true. And then he said, uh, you didn't have anything to drink on Saturday? Well, Saturday night, I went to a fraternity party, and I did have a drink, a seven and seven, that I didn't even finish, because you know I, was, I wasn't a drinker at that time. And I'm not now, but at that time. But I did have a drink. And when I said, yes, sir, we were standing in uh, a room in the dormitory, and there was a bed there. We were both standing up. And when I said, yes, sir, he just said, oh, no, no, no. And he fell back on the bed. Scared me. And I went, coach, coach. And he said, I'm all right, I'm all right. And uh, when he sat back up and stood up, he said, well, I'm going to have to suspend you. He said, but first, I'm going to meet with the coaches. We'll talk about this. You come over to the office at 2 o'clock. So I went over there to office, and all the coaches were already standing out there in the foyer. And when I walked in, Coach Bryant walked out. And he said, well, we had a meeting. Some of these coaches think uh, we should uh, discipline you some other way. He said, that it's all right. We can do that, he said. But if I don't suspend you now, I won't be coaching here next year. I'll retire. And I was scared and embarrassed. And I said, oh, coach, you know, I don't want you to do that. Like, you know, like, no. And I didn't know whether he would or wouldn't, but that's what he said. And I said, oh, no, sir, no, sir. He said, all right, then you, you accept the suspension. I want you moved out of the dorm. You move over to another dorm, and then you behave yourself for the next four months or whatever. You can come out for spring practice. I said, oh, yes, sir, thank you. And that's what happened. In Super Bowl three, the Colts, the Jets, I think you were, what, something like seven to one underdogs, unbelievable uh, odds stacked against you. But you knew 
that they were essentially wrong, the odds. What did you see? Well, first of all, we did hear how uh, we were going to be beaten up badly by the Baltimore Colts. The Colts were best-looking team we'd seen uh, up to that time. Well, who cares? No one, these guys, we know better. The reason we knew better is you have that one-eyed monster, the camera that you're looking at and studying the opponent and studying yourself. We would see things uh, on film that we felt like we could deal with, that we could handle, that we could beat. We had one of those offensive lines that uh, over the last five games of the season, I don't believe they committed a penalty or had a broken assignment. We didn't hurt ourselves a great deal. Our defense was the best kept secret in the AFL, I guess, or in football, because we had the number one defense in the AFL. So um, we felt pretty good about our chances. And when I was asked about it a couple of nights before the game, uh, it was uh, my demeanor, attitude uh, was a confident one. A fella in the back of the room said, Namath, you know, we're going to kick your butt. And I said, wait a minute, I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee you. And that was that until my coach heard I said that. Of course, we, <laughs> Coach Eubank wasn't real keen on that, and uh, my teammates weren't real keen, especially the offensive linemen. You said that game still brings back goosebumps when you think about it. What about the game gets the goosebumps? Before the game, when the captains had to walk out to the center of the field, I kind of went all the way back to Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania as a little boy, remembering watching Johnny Unitas on television, remember watching these Baltimore Colt players, and I'm walking with Johnny Sample, who I had seen run a touchdown back on a kickoff in a championship game in the NFL. It was like, holy cow, you know, we're here. And uh, that was cool. A New York Times Pulitzer winning author wrote, uh, quote, with one gesture, he saved the Jets, saved the AFL, and set the wheels spinning along the road to merger. Your thoughts on that? I'm thrilled that I was there with that team. We did it, you know. But that's not about the team. That's about you specifically, that quote. Maybe it is uh, specifically, but I'm about team. I wouldn't have done crap if I didn't have my center up there or Boozer or Snell, my teammates. I wouldn't have even been a professional player if I didn't have Coach Brian or Larry Bruno helping me along the way, getting myself together. It's a reality that life is a team effort to me, see? And I learned that through sports. Without you, do you think there would have been the AFL-NFL merger? Without the AFL winning the Super Bowl, there would have probably still come a merger, but not the same way that it came and not the same way things were divided and split up. I mean, Al Davis, of course, uh, who owns the Oakland Raiders, he didn't want to merge at all. He was happy the AFL was there. Now, we can compete on our own with these guys. But the other owners... And, and he credits you, too. Well, hey, I was a part of it. He was a part of it. Uh, and before me, those other AFL guys that used to get those basketball checks at the end of the week. I call them basketball because they bounce. We had three original uh, New York Titans on our team when we won the Super Bowl. And that was so special to see where those guys came from, from the inception of that league to being champions over 
the NFL because we weren't accepted by the players, the coaches, or the fans of football until we won. We weren't accepted uh, as equals. The uh, 68 AFL championship game, at some point during the game, you were at the bottom of a pile and you hurt your finger a, a little bit. What happened? Well, first, in the, in the first quarter, I got hit in the head, whether it was the ground or somebody hit me where I saw gold and had, uh, I was discombobulated. You know, it worked out well. We won, and, but that was a tough one because of the head injury and the, the painful thing at a uh, hand. Uh, it was, uh, Oakland was mean and they were tough. When the finger was just dislocated, I'm on the ground and I feel this pain and Dan Birdwell, defensive tackle for the Raiders, is jumping up and down right over here. He said, hey, Joe, look, 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 you broke your finger, you broke your finger. And I went, oh, no, I turned my head. It was third down anyway, so now it was fourth, so I ran off the field and gave it to the trainer, Jeff Snedeker, and he just got it back. And How bad the finger looked? Well, it's still kind of a little bit uh, swollen. <laughs> I only looked at it one time. That was that first glance on the field when it was pointing the wrong way. I didn't have the nerve to look at it after that. Any reservations to going back out there on the field with the state of your head and oh, everything no. that happened? No, there was, it was still a time that uh, you played uh, if you could. There was no doubt. Uh, had to try, was going to do it, yes. In another uh, Jets-Raiders game, I think it's the same player, uh, Ben Davidson hits you with a cheap shot uh, that leaves you, I believe, face down in the turf. And by the time you finally get up, you, I think, start walking towards the Raiders' sideline, presumably thinking it was your own. How much pain were you in with that one? Well, you know, when you get your head hit, uh, you do see some different lights, and it takes a while to get squared away again. But uh, on one of those licks, uh, I had a broken cheekbone. It's one of the great pictures I've ever seen. I, I was doing some news work one time in sports, and I go to the Oakland Raiders office, and they had this wall of a 12-foot-wide, 20-foot-high picture of Ben Davidson horizontal in the air with his forearm, of me flying in this direction with my helmet out here and my jaw like that. <laughs> That's the picture they put up in their office, in their foyer. Ah, damn, made me feel good about beating them then too when right. I saw that picture. The 1969 Denver uh, Jets game tackled Dave Costa nailed you helmet into your rib cage. What do you recall? It was beautiful. It was absolutely one of the finest hits ever. Really? I mean, I was just picture perfect with form, throwing that long ball downfield, and he left the ground about three yards over there, and he was horizontal, and that helmet hit me in the solar plexus, and my body bent over his helmet, and he just carried me back to the ground and drove me in there, just landed right there. And it was a wonderful hit. I couldn't breathe. Uh, it took a while, but uh, it didn't leave any lasting uh, uh, injury. How's your body today? Great. Pretty good. Real good. Real good. <laughs> you know, I guess I could complain about a lot of things, some little things and all, but uh, knowing how I feel and uh, knowing uh, how much more I have ahead of me, 
uh, I try to keep up with uh, my instrument, so to speak. What pain, if any, do you have today that ties directly back into those football days? None, seriously. None of them are real painful. I've had some from time to time, you know, but uh, they've not been de debilitating. I know guys that, have, that are worse off than I am, football players and all. Uh, I do have artificial knees, and uh, I, I, I maintain a, some work on my neck and spine. Uh, my shoulders have healed, wrists have healed. You know, I, I've healed up well, so uh, I don't like to complain. And I'll go back to my family. You know, they never wanted to hear me complain. I guess uh, I know things could be worse. You've had the opportunity and spent time with so many luminaries over the years after all. I, I think it was written that you were the biggest thing to hit New York since Babe Ruth. And I was interested in just mentioning a, a few names and uh, getting you to recall a memorable story from uh, each individual. The, the first one would simply be uh, Mickey Mantle. Oh, man. First time I met Mickey Mantle, now you've got to understand, I love baseball. But I'm in a, in a tavern just off First Avenue and 49th Street in Manhattan. I knew the, the night manager is running it, so I'm over at the bar and we're talking. And he says, you, Joe, you like baseball, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, did you ever meet Mickey Mantle? <laughs> oh, no, man, you kidding? He said, how about Whitey Ford? I said, oh, I love that guy, watch him pitch, you know, yeah. No, I've never met him. He said, how about Billy Martin? Did you ever meet Billy Martin? I said, no. Well, he just took my arm. And we walked over about 20 feet, and the three of them are sitting in a booth there. And he was buddies with them, so they knew him. And he took me over there, and he introduced me to him and sat me down, and those guys, uh, uh, I was a rookie at the time, so they could have beaten me up pretty good verbally, you know. Okay. But they were such stars, I was, I was really, uh, I couldn't believe that I'm sitting there with the real Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford and Billy Martin. See, I, I watched baseball, I liked baseball. And uh, it turned out uh, those are three terrific guys. Uniquely uh, different in each way, but uh, friends, and whenever they had the common goal, you know, they were focused, and uh, it, it was great. Whitey just as soft-spoken and as sweet as could be, you know, and Mickey, that old Oklahoma, what, Texas, uh, and then Billy Martin. We all know Billy was, was uh, filled with a lot of energy. How about Johnny Carson? Oh, boy. Johnny, uh, you know, it was like me or anybody else at times. Uh, Johnny was the best, it, you know, the Tonight Show and, and uh, how he worked that. But uh, I know Johnny away from work. You know, we used to visit occasionally uh, groups of guys uh, over at his apartment. Mr. Werblin and he, again, were tight, and there were some parties over at his place, or he'd come up to a couple of taverns that we'd hang out with. And... Uh, Johnny was just, uh, Johnny, he was sweet, you know, he was nice, except whenever we were drinking, you know, some guys drink and they get a little bit mean and tough, and some guys uh, uh, stay mellow. Johnny used to get tough. Really? Tough. I saw him slap our linebacker one day at this party, one night at this party in his apartment with Johnny, tell you, you think you're tough, huh? You think you're tough because you're a football player? Whack. Ralph stood there. Ralph Baker, thank God. He's a, uh, he was our linebacker from Penn State. 
Ralph did not react to whatever, but y'all, oh, come on, man, let's come on. And so everything cooled down after that. And, you know, the next day or two, Johnny was uh, a little sad of that. But uh, sometimes when some of us uh, had too many spirits in our body uh, from, the, from the bottle, we, we don't behave in a way that uh, uh, we're proud of. How about Frank Sinatra? Oh, boy. First time I met him, he called me Broken Knee. Broken Knee? Broken Knee. Mrs. Uh, Werblin and Mr. Werblin, the president of our team, had been to dinner, so they decided to take me over to Jilly's night spot. And uh, Jilly Rizzo had a, a nightclub uh, tavern. The best ribs in town, or the second best ribs, a couple of places. My other buddy had good ribs, too. But uh, we walk in the place, and just sitting right here is Frank Sinatra and Jilly. And I'm trailing Mr. Werblin, Mrs. Werblin, and they greet like they were, you know, they were old friends. I mean, they were really old friends. And uh, Mr. Werman turns around to introduce me. Before that, Mr. Sinatra says, hey, broken knee, sit down here. <laughs> you know? So it went on from there, and I was, you know, I, all ears. You know, I just couldn't believe where I was. And over the years, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Barbara and being with Mr. Sinatra and some other uh, places and occasions, sitting with Frank and Dino. Dean Martin is a wonderful experience. I, mean, I loved working with him and visiting with him. That was uh, part of my life that I never dreamt uh, I'd experience, being able to meet these people that I had watched over the years and finding out how genuine so many of them were. How about Elvis Presley? Boy, one of the highlights in my life, uh, Elvis was performing in Las Vegas. Big fan of yours. Oh, I was a big fan of his, you know that, and uh, was lucky enough to go backstage. Well, I had my father with me, and uh, my dad and I went backstage, and they let us into Elvis, his dressing room, and just Elvis and a couple other people. Well, I had met Elvis prior to that, so I'm introducing Elvis to my father, and I tell you, he made my dad feel so good. Mr. Name at this, Mr. Name at that, come here, sir, sit down. Sat down on the couch with him, and he and my dad talked, must have talked 15, 20 minutes just the two of them. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. If it were possible, if it's possible, I became even a bigger fan of his. How about when Muhammad Ali was on? One of the greatest times ever with George Siegel, I might add. And uh, he made it was uncomfortable, wasn't it? Or no? It turned out to be uncomfortable because uh, Muhammad was going through the military uh, situation uh, on, uh, because of his religion, uh, refusing to do battle, of course, which he justified. And uh, uh, George had just finished a movie where there's a nude scene in it. And so we're talking, uh, doing the show. I don't know whether it was Dick or myself that asked George about the nude scene. And so George is talking about, well, we're doing this, pop, pop, pop. And I'm looking, and uh, Muhammad's very quiet, very quiet. So uh, Dick asks Muhammad something about this, and, and Muhammad says, wait a minute. I'm a Muslim minister, and you're talking about nudity and sex here? 
And at that point, yeah, well, yeah, let's take a break, folks. We'll come right back to you, you know. The 1966 Sports Illustrated feature that was done on you, and I'm sure you've read this before, but it goes, uh, it is Joe Willie Namath at play, relaxing, nighttiming, the boss mover studying defensive tendencies of New York's off-duty secretary, stewardesses, dancers, nurses, uh, playboy bunnies, actresses, shop girls, all of whom make life stimulating for a bachelor. He poses a question for us all. Would you rather be young, single, rich, famous, talented, and happy, or president? <laughs> you remember reading that? Uh, I think I remember who wrote it. And uh, I actually uh, became a little hostile with him because we, weren't, we didn't know he was doing an interview. Okay. <laughs> and we started out over at, uh, oh boy, anyway, we started out on 51st Street or so and uh, went to another joint. Uh, Dan Jenkins, was it, that wrote that? Uh, maybe, I believe yeah. so. And it, it, I was uh, taken back by it because I didn't realize that this was going to appear in print. The things we were discussing. And you know, in Sports we Illustrated out, of all publications, right? You know, I just didn't know at the time. And so I learned. Uh, I had some hostility there for a while, but I know resentment uh, is not healthy, so I've been able to shake all of that for the most, yeah, all of it. Uh, but at that time, I was really upset, man. I couldn't believe that this guy was writing all this stuff. You know, we, we don't talk that way to people. He, he put a quote in there that you said, I don't like to date so much as I just kind of, you know, run into something. Well, it's, it's making plans. At that time, you know, locking yourself into a situation without, uh, certainly with the lady, without having a love uh, working for the two of you, uh, no. Plus, foot, you know, I had work to do. I never knew when I was going out or I wasn't going out at night. You know, I had to get things done first, and usually I'd come home after practice and get the film work finished, and uh, then I'd go out because, once again, we didn't have to be at the stadium till noon the next day. So even with eight hours sleep, you know, uh, you could spend a pretty good bit of the night out and about. Sure. Uh, I mean, you're Joe Namath, the biggest thing to hit New York since Babe Ruth. There are stories of, uh, you know, you walking through places and girls sitting with Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones and getting up to uh, leave with you and y your friends. To what extent, I mean, was it that time where, you know, you could basically walk into a place and sit down and that was as much effort as you'd have to make to courting girls? It, it, you almost start accepting it. You almost start thinking that's the way things are now. You know, this is the way it is. Uh, it was a different lifestyle, certainly. Totally different. And I felt like as long as I did my job, that the rest of it, the, the off-field activities and things, as long as it came after my work, that I should enjoy the life that I was living. And uh, so I, I, I did get out in the belt. I was a healthy young man that uh, appreciated the company of the opposite sex and um, a good meal. And so, and I wasn't locked in. See, I, I hadn't committed to a lady. Uh, I'd never lived with a lady and didn't have that kind of relationship. So uh, I was uh, free to get out and about.
Mike Bite told me a story about what, just one time, the only instance he can recall where uh, the girl might not have been as attractive as you initially thought. And uh, for this was pre-first uh, season in the professional football, and you were supposed to go up to spend time with the owner, That's Sonny, a long but story, didn't yeah. end up making it. Tell you the night before she looked great, <laughs> but when, that next day uh, she was a different girl. You know, somehow her eyesight can get a, a bit fouled up uh, whenever I guess we they don't get enough sleep, or if we're drinking, we drink too much. You know, somehow. But that was awful. <laughs> that was an awful experience that uh, we didn't know how to handle. We were too embarrassed, didn't want to make the lady feel uncomfortable, but certainly didn't want to take her where we were going. Uh, and that, How did you work it out? It was clumsy. We kept getting lost. Kept getting lost. Didn't know where we were going. We were going to drive down to Mammoth Racetrack from New York. Now here's Mike from Birmingham, Alabama, and me from Beaver Falls, then Alabama. We didn't know where we were going, so it wasn't too hard getting lost. Right. Uh, we ended up spending hours on the road, then back to Manhattan. How often would there be drinking, partying the night before a game? Uh, Unless it was with the uh, owners or with the team, there wasn't that kind of thing. At a home game, I'd go out to dinner or so, but there wasn't any partying. Now, uh, when you talk about drinking, uh, three or four drinks, you know, that, that was not abnormal. I mean, I'm not talking about going out and getting drunk the night before a game. Okay. Maybe we did sometimes, too. Uh, it's my memory again that gets me. But it would be uncommon to be drunk or hungover on an actual game day? Absolutely. Okay. It's absolutely uncommon. To what extent does it bother you that there are stories out there about that, that it's kind of people view that as part of your legend when in reality, you know, as you're saying, it's not as much the case? Well, no, I'm not saying it didn't happen from time to time. I'm just saying it wasn't mean, an issue and it wasn't uh, influential on our physical conditioning at the time. At least we didn't think it was. Uh, we didn't know. How was your diet back then? I don't think any of us ever thought about what was in the food we were eating. Because on game day, we'd have our pre-game meal, and all I'd have is coffee, maybe a piece of toast, and then chewing tobacco. Really? I was a guy that carried the salt shaker in the back pocket when we went out, on the apples, on the radishes, on the watermelons, you name it, man. Salt was wonderful. No one knew about the proper diets for athletes back then. They thought they did, but they didn't. We didn't know about how to get the body strong through weightlifting without getting tightened up, so professional football players didn't lift weights until the 70s. Uh, there were things we didn't know, and we're glad that they found out, for sure. Uh, I know guys that have had drinking problems that uh, never gave it a thought because it was like a regular routine, and then the next thing you know, it is a routine, and you're doing it every day, and uh, it starts to control your life and destroy it. So you have to find uh, the strength to shift gears. When did you realize you wanted to stop drinking altogether? When my wife uh, told me I needed to, when my daughter Jessica was just about a year old, 
I made a, a deal with my wife at the time that if I didn't stop on my own, I would check into a rehab place. Well, I was so terrified of a rehab place and what the consequences of notoriety in a rehab place might bring or feel like that I knew I wasn't going to drink. And I was able to stop drinking uh, and stay sober for 13 years. I was, after getting an education this last time, uh, I, was, I, I learned I was what you call dry drunk without the education and understanding alcohol and understanding the system physically and emotionally and just quitting with the strength and determination. That's called a dry drunk. You do need support. When I did uh, get an education, uh, it was uh, joyful because uh, not only did it help me spiritually, I saw people that I didn't want to end up like. I believed their stories, their help, you know, and telling me what they're telling me. And uh, it's a matter of uh, shifting gears and uh, carrying fear. I still have a fear for what that stuff does to me and what it could do to me. So uh, every day uh, I'm thankful and I do say my little prayer to whatever God uh, I choose, my God, and it helps. It helps. What's involved with ultimately overcoming the problem, the addiction? Well, I think sugar has a lot to do with it for one thing. There's a whole lot of sugar in there, too. And if you come, if you're constantly getting a certain amount of sugar, that could be part of it. But I, I, I think, uh, to me, it was mental, it was emotional, and uh, somewhat of an escape, being able to shed responsibilities or being on stage uh, as an athlete, as a ball player, and just wanting to say, forget it, let me, you know, and that was a way of escaping some. What advice would you have for somebody who may be watching, who wants to stop drinking but is unable to stop? Get some help. Go see someone uh, with Alcoholics Anonymous. You've got to want to do it, uh, understand about it, understand what it is, and uh, ask for help. You know, it's, it's like uh, you ask God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Those three things, uh, you know, every day it comes to mind, and it's uh, solid, it's good. If you can get through the physical part of it, uh, what withdrawals they might be, there might be, or what withdrawals you think there are, uh, it becomes an attitude. I always think of the down times, how it made me feel, how I fouled up everything I ever did in my life. It seemed that I was really screwy and wrong about. I had some kind of alcohol input. And so uh, I know I'm a slow learner, but by God, I've learned. Really a pleasure, sir. <laughs> Graham enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.